We're up to point three, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a phrase that occurs in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, if you'll turn with me, Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is being challenged about law-keeping and the Sabbath. Let me read to you from Mark 2, the end of it, verse 23, through to the first paragraph of chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel. Verse 23, Mark 2. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they, were make, uh, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The question is, what is unlawful and what is lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees especially had many concerns about the Sabbath, what you could do and even more importantly what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Here you see they saw Jesus' disciples acting unlawfully and you see Jesus challenges them and shames them in their attitude to their lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath. It gives rise to Jesus being plotted against in chapter 3 verse 6 by the Herodians who were the extreme, uh, uh, one extreme of the political spectrum and the Pharisees who were the other extreme of the political spectrum. But it was about the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is first seen in creation and that's the place where Jesus is speaking of when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 we read that God rested from his labours and blessed the seventh day uh, as the day of rest. This rest day, this seventh day created by God was not for man's bondage but for man's benefit that he too may rest from his labour and enjoy God. And therefore it's an ideal day for healing and for saving. It's important to grasp, friends, that there's more to life than work. For God there's more to creation than work. For his creation and his creatures there's more to their existence than work. It's what the workaholic doesn't know. It's what your boss doesn't want you to discover. It's what the graduate is being trained to miss out on. There's more to life than work. Every day is not the same, like a permanent groundhog day. For time is not measured only in days, but also in weeks. For days and rest days, for weeks and weekends. 
This is reinforced in the law. For in the Ten Commandments, dealing with our duty towards God and towards fellow man, there's this strange commandment about the Sabbath. You can understand you shall have no other gods before me. You can understand you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal. But there's this commandment, you shall keep the Sabbath. You shall honour the Sabbath day. But it's not, you shall not, it is different. It says, remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For it's part of creation. And so the importance of this commandment in Exodus 31 is, is spelt out for the Israelites. For in Exodus 31 verse 12 following, those who will not keep the Sabbath day in Israel are to be put to death. It's a capital crime. You can understand murder being a capital crime. Adultery we find even harder to think of it's a crime. Bearing false witness, well perjury, that could put us in not coveting, well, who's going to even... How could you prosecute someone for coveting? But here is a capital crime, working on the Sabbath. Because it's a sign of being one of God's people. It has to do with the meaning of life itself, for refreshment. In the law, there's something that people often find strange. For the Ten Commandments occur twice in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Naturally they're the same, except on the Sabbath commandment. And both talk about remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but the reason given is different. In Exodus the reason is because of creation. In the book of Deuteronomy it's because you were once slaves and have been redeemed. I read from Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You worked like slaves and God rescued you from that, that you may enjoy his rest. Therefore, rest. Don't go on working like slaves. University graduates need to understand this. And the time they need to understand it is when they're undergraduates, so that they will set the course aright. For the world wants you to work 724. And that is not how God has created you to work. That is not part of God's creation. God's creation is there's more to life than work. There is rest and refreshment. It's the slaves who had to work all the time, but God has released us from slavery, not to return to slavery, but to live in his rest. See, there's no real difference between the Exodus account and the Deuteronomy account, because the promised land was known as the land of rest. When the people crossed the wilderness for 40 years, God promised that generation would never enter his rest. You see it in Psalm 95. For the Creator is our God and he has spoken, but we were rebellious to him. So he promised in his anger and in his wrath that we would never enter his rest. God the Creator 
was taking his people into his rest in Palestine, the promised land. But that generation that rebelled against him, they knew no rest. But which generation is the psalm talking about? Originally Moses and his generation that came out of Egypt. But it wasn't Moses who wrote the psalm. It was King David who lived hundreds and hundreds of years after Moses. And when he wrote about it, he was already living in the land of rest. So what's, what's the psalm warning us about? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, put me to the test, and I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did. Because if you harden your hearts like they did, you won't enter the land of rest, says David to people who were living in the land of rest. So what rest was he talking about? Come with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. For that's where the New Testament discusses this particular issue. Hebrews 3 and 4. The author warns us not to ignore the word of God and quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11 of Hebrews 3, pointing out that the psalm is about today. And there is still standing the promised rest today. Look at 3.7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, he goes on. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The problem that they faced out in the wilderness is the same problem they faced in David's day and is the same problem we are facing today. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he says, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he points a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for God, the people of God. And whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. God created the world and finished his creation with a day of rest. That was the seventh day. What happened on the eighth day? Nothing. It's never come. The seventh day is the end of creation. There is no eighth day of creation. God hasn't started creating again. He has finished his work of creation and is resting. And he invites us into his rest. The people of Israel, they were slaves. And so he rescued them out of their slavery that they may have rest. But they were disobedient. And so they would not enter his rest. He took them in by Joshua to give them the land of rest. But they continued in disobedience and David warned them. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because you don't get into God's rest if you harden your hearts against the word of God. And so he continues with this day. You see, that day is the wonderful day. It's called today. Today is today. It will always be today, won't it? And today, God's rest is still available for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we are spiritually resurrected into that rest. It's not a physical rest. You don't go to the rest by going to Palestine. You go to the rest by going to the Lord Jesus Christ who raises you into the presence of God. For he is the Lord of the Sabbath and we share the Sabbath with him. See, what has all this got to do with the resurrection? The resurrection is not, is not just about what happened to Jesus back in 30 AD or whenever it precisely was, when he died and rose again. Sure, the resurrection is about that. That is the most important fact of the resurrection, but that's not what it's all about. The resurrection is not just about what happens to me when I die, but about the judgment of the world. The resurrection is not just about me or about you or about us. It's not just about Jesus alone. It's about the universe, the plan of God, the, the, the rest of God ruling over all the universe that goes on for eternity. It's about all of us. We look at these two ideas in turn. Firstly, it's about the judgment. You see, there will be a resurrection day when God will judge the world. All will leave the tombs and rise. Some will leave the tombs and rise to death. Others will leave the tombs and rise to life. But just as by one man came death, so by one man will come the resurrection of the dead. For by Jesus, God will judge the world. Come with me to Acts 17, where Paul is preaching the gospel on Athens, at, uh, on the hill called Areopagus. It was the kind of Q&A of the first century. The kind of place where anyone wandering through town was brought in and put on display to give his spiel and to answer questions, so to speak. And Paul explains the gospel from idolatry, from creation. And then he says, verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, 
The times of ignorance, Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus rising from the dead means that he is the one who is appointed as the man who will judge the living and the dead. And the day has now been fixed by his resurrection from the dead. It is as Jesus himself taught. Go back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 where Jesus is teaching and he says in verse 21 John 5 21 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whomever he to whom he will the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father Whoever doesn't honour the Son doesn't honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come again into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so is granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the idea of the resurrection is not primarily about Jesus being resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated to die again. Jesus was resuscitated to live forever, <laughs> resurrected, and bringing with him then the judgment day of the end of the world. What is the resurrection about? It's not fundamentally about Jesus coming out of the tomb three days later. It is because he came three days later out of the tomb that the resurrection age has commenced. The resurrection age is the judgment of the world age. We're in John's Gospel. Go across to chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus has a friend called Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Jesus didn't go to heal him. Jesus waited for him to die, then went to. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha is fairly strong in her approach to Jesus on the subject. Pick it up, John 11. Uh, verse uh, 21 Martha said to Jesus Lord if you'd been here my brother wouldn't have died but even now I know that whatever you ask from God God will give you Jesus said to her your brother will rise again now notice Jesus said your brother will rise again what will Martha say at this point terrific marvellous let me show you where the tomb is no that's not what she says how does she respond to the news that he will rise again? She's dismissive. Verse 24. Martha said to him, 
I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yes, of course he'll rise again. That's what's going to happen, Jesus. When the resurrection happens, some will rise to life, others will rise to condemnation. My brother Lazarus, he'll rise to life. You say Jesus, Lazarus is going to rise again. I'll say, well, why don't you tell me something? I knew that already. We all knew that. That's what happens. The dead will rise again. Lazarus will rise, you see. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. That is an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? Not I am going to rise, not he is going to rise, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The resurrection is about the judgment day. It's the new age. And therefore we're all caught up in the resurrection. But secondly, understand that the resurrection is not just about me or about Jesus, it's about us. And to understand that, you need to grasp the one and the many. The scripture says, Adam was the death of all of us, as in Adam all die. We individualist Westerners have terrible trouble with this passage because we think, well, Adam did the wrong thing and therefore I'm going to die. Surely if Adam did the wrong thing, Adam's going to die, and then me, well, it's a question of whether I do the right or wrong as to whether I die. I've done the wrong, so I'll die, but I'll die for my sins, not for Adam's sin. That's because Westerners don't understand humanity. No more inhuman kind of culture than the Western culture. Adam's sin was our sin, and his death was our death because we were in Adam. You see, like the children of, of refugees, our life is determined by our parents' choices. They choose to flee the country and go to a new land. Well, we go to a new land. They choose to stay under the oppressive tyranny. Well, we grow up under oppressive tyranny. But the decisions of children are the decisions of their parents. It's like a nation. A nation lives or dies together. Israel was saved by Moses and destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. When Hannibal fought against Rome, he said the city Carthage was destroyed even though they failed to enforce him when he asked for it. We, we go together. There's, there's no real point saying, well... I didn't vote for the government that sent our soldiers into Iraq or sent our soldiers into... Australians went to war. If Australia goes to war, I go to war. I may not want the war, I may not like the war, but my nation's at war. That's what happens. That's the nature of society. That's the nature of life. You are not an individual, free and independent of everybody and anybody else. You are an extension of your, of your parents and live in a social custom. The reason you're wealthy and educated is because of your parents, not because of you. If you had been born in a different country at a different times, you wouldn't be as educated and as wealthy as you are. We are what we are because of where we're born in the, in the history of, and place of time. And we're all just extensions of our parents. 
It's a funny business. Everybody I know wants to inherit their parents' wealth and no one I know wants to inherit their parents' debts. <laughs> Suddenly I am part of my parents. They're rich and died and they can give me money. But I'm not part of my parents if they're foolish and debt-ridden. My friends, you are. That's just what we are. The biggest single indicator of educational outcome is parents' commitment to education. Not the size of the school, not the size of the classroom, not the, the, the latest gadgetry that's in the classroom, not the curriculum that you're studying, not the quality of the teacher. Your parents are the biggest indicator of your future educational success. So blame your parents <laughs> when you don't succeed. Say, well, it's your fault I failed. <laughs> if you'd been more committed to education, I would have done better. It's all your fault. I say that now because I'm a grandparent and no longer a parent. <laughs> well, I'm still a parent, yes, yeah, so it's, uh, it's just, they're finished. Um, <laughs> so, the individual is a child of Adam, children of a sinful nature, and we pay the penalty of death for our own sins, not for Adam's, because we were in Adam, sinning in him. And likewise, it's the Son of Man who will rule, the resurrected Son of Man who will rule. But the Son of Man doesn't come alone, he comes with his people. When we read Daniel 7 and other passages of the Scriptures, the Son of Man is a corporate person as well as an individual person. So when Jesus says the Sabbath was created for man, he means that the Son of Man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, for when he comes to the throne, he doesn't come alone, he comes with his people. That's why we reign with him. We are judges with him. We will rule with him. And that's why we are the Lords over time. Because we don't see life as meaningless, going nowhere with no point of reference outside of ourselves, something we've got to make up for ourselves. Nor do we see it as eternally going nowhere. It just is. Or Nor do we see it as a kind of a giant trip from the Big Bang into final entropy. It had a beginning in the creation of God. It's under the control of its ruler and it will be brought to his judgment in due time. But that judgment has commenced with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have experienced that judgment already when we were born again by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have been brought out of death to sins and trespasses into new life where we sit with Christ in the heavenly realms spiritually, awaiting that day when he returns physically and we are resurrected physically. For then we will be seen in our glory as we judge the world with him and rule eternity with him. For we share with him in his rule and in his judgment. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. My friends, if you want to know about Christianity, if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian and you want to find out, studying the resurrection for a week will do you no harm. It'll hurt, it'll require hard work, 
But if he said, I am the resurrection, you'll be hard-pressed to understand Christianity and Jesus unless you understand the resurrection. Because he is the resurrection. Not just, I will be resurrected. Not just, I have been resurrected. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall not die, but live with me as the ruler. Our culture and our society are the slaves of time. But because we know of eternity and share with Christ in eternity, we are the lords of time. What a great privilege. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death for us and for his resurrection, that we too can share in that death and that resurrection, that we spiritually can be with him in the heavenly realms, awaiting his return for our physical resurrection. We pray, Heavenly Father, for each one of us who is here this week, that we may all learn and understand more of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those amongst us who have not yet come to be reborn by the gospel, who have not yet come to that spiritually heavenly realm. We pray that you would help us to learn and to understand that by your spirit we may be moved out of death into life. And we pray, Father, for those of us who have seen that transformation in life, that you would help us to understand it more clearly, that we might not live as citizens of this world, as citizens of Australia, but we might live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as the lords of time and eternity, of those who would judge the living and the dead and the angels in the world to come, that we might see who we are, and who we will be that we might now live in this world, in this time, appropriately and properly, as your people. So help us in our coming days of study, please, Father, that as we read your word and as we talk with each other, that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of the great plans and purposes you have for the world and that you have for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.